Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Well, we are in week three of our series called All In. And I don't know about you, but what I found in our culture, and specifically in our country, and actually um, even in, I was talking with a friend of mine who's not actually from this country, this same thing has been an epidemic in, in the country of Romania, to where people, uh, they use the word Christian, but the word Christian doesn't mean anything. Or the word Christian seems so watered down that they mean that they think it means everything. And yet, if the word Christian means everything, then in essence it means nothing because it's either, either Jesus or not of Jesus. And those of us who would call ourselves Christians, we really should be challenged in the idea that Jesus never actually called his disciples Christians, not one time. That word was uttered several years later by the Apostle Paul of referring to a certain group at the church of Antioch, which is not a problem in and of itself. But we're going back to the teachings of Jesus, and we've done this for the first two weeks. We'll be doing this for the next several weeks, going to the teachings of Jesus, and that we would reflect, that the Word of God would reflect upon us to say, are we really following, or are we following a cultural Christianity that has watered down the gospel, that has made God uh, not without, not with power, and yet our lives are not fulfilled because of it. So we're going back to the teachings of Jesus. And, and the big idea for today is, and I hope you see this from from what happens to Peter, but my, the big idea for today is when you follow Jesus, it's more than an interruption in your life. When you follow Jesus, it becomes your life. The following of Jesus becomes your life. It's not an interruption in your plan. It's destroying your plan and surrendering your plan to God's plan so that now it's not just His plan, it's your plan. That's what this is about. And that's what we'll see. But it requires something of us. And, and to connect this idea, I'll tell you a story. Several years ago, um, I was a Boy Scout. I loved to be a Boy Scout. I was a big fan of Boy Scouts. I was not an Eagle Scout. I was a slacker Boy Scout and didn't make it all the way to the top. Um, shame on me. Um, I decided to chase other things whenever uh, I turned 16, like a job and money and a car. So I walked away from the Boy Scouts. But early on in my time in Scouts, um, I had this opportunity to go rappelling. Um, many of you have probably never been rappelling. Maybe some of you have. But rappelling is amazing. But there's a big difference in rappelling between looking from the bottom and looking to the top of the cliff and actually being at the top of the cliff and looking down at the bottom of the cliff. At the bottom, you look up and you're thinking, that's not that big of a deal until you stand over the edge and realize that's a huge deal. And this, uh, this day specifically, I remember putting on the, it wasn't a harness, it was actually like a rope thing. Now they actually like use full-blown harnesses, but we did it old school, just straight ropes. And so they, they had me all tied up. It almost looked like a rope diaper, as weird as that is, but it really was. And so, so I, I get this whole harness thing put up, and he tells me everything that I'm supposed to do. And they've actually got the, the rope tied off to a very large tree at the top of the cliff, And I had been watching everybody else kind of go over the edge, and I'm thinking, yeah, it's not that big a deal because they're doing it. So I was just kind of blowing off, um, blowing off really how big of a, of a commitment that is to actually step over the edge and trust in the rope. So I would really, and, and unfortunately, I would kind of mock the rest of them, be like, oh, that's so easy. But I was actually deceiving myself um, until I was harnessed in and I was roped in, and it was my turn to go over the edge. And I learned something in that moment that when I get scared, my knees wobble uncontrollably. Um, it's the weirdest thing. It just happens. I don't have to tell them to do it. It just happens. It really does. So I'm, I'm all harnessed up, and, and the guy's coaching me, and he's looking at me, and I'm seeing the tree that's holding it, and it's a big tree, but I'm thinking, okay, the tree's going to hold, but this rope is, you know, is it going to hold? And he's, he's reassuring me that the rope's going to hold, and the rope's going to hold, and everything's cool. So I'm, I'm there, I'm harnessed in, and he's telling me, and we've kind of gone through this workshop telling me everything I need to do to, to step over the side of the cliff to be safely down at the bottom to say that I've repelled. Well, I didn't believe him, but I tried it anyway. 
I took his advice. I did what I was supposed to. I had, the, I had the rope in my hand. I was so confident, as all my friends were now mocking me, of which I deserved. So now, I'm, I'm, I'm harnessed in, and I'm getting ready to go, and I'm communicating the things I'm supposed to communicate. But I realized something in that moment. Whenever I would step over the edge, I had to get into a place where I had to put all of my trust into these ropes. And all of the knots that I couldn't tie myself, and I had to trust that they were tied correctly. But as I was going over the edge and putting all of these, my trust in these ropes, and just as I, I was about one foot on the side of the cliff and one foot off the side of the cliff, I realized that in that moment, if I was going to do what it is that I wanted to do, it was all or nothing. And what a wonderful metaphor for, for somebody who is who's trying to follow Jesus today. That you, you cannot do what it is that God wants you to do if you feel safely that you have, metaphorically, that you have one foot on top of the cliff and then one foot beneath. You have to totally rely on Jesus for your life. And you have to turn it over to Him. You have to trust that when you let go of your plan that you're trusting that His plan's better. That when you, when you rely upon His Word that you see that, that, that His Word is better than the worldly way of living. And that there's something profound about the Word of God that it speaks to you into the depths of your soul in a way that's different than culture does. In, in a way that's different than any other Christian book does. But we have to be all in to Jesus. We have to be all into His Word. Because following Jesus, get this church, is always more than an interruption to your life. It becomes your life. And it's all or nothing. Today's text is Luke 5. Luke 5. The Gospels, there are four of them, they're all kind of written with different audiences in mind. The Gospel of Luke is written to what they call the Gentile audience, which is basically anyone who's not Jewish. So I would assume that's just about all of us. So this specific Gospel pertains to us. It is written um, from a really a doctor's standpoint. He was, his trade was being a medical doctor. And you see his name uh, a few times in his work that he has done throughout the first century church, specifically with the Apostle Paul. And for him, he was a medical doctor by trade, but he was a gospel writer by calling. He did an incredible amount of research. The, the accounts that he gives in the book of Luke, but then also the historical record of the book of Acts, he got from, from, uh, from eyewitnesses to the events. He didn't actually witness these events. So he would go to Peter, and he would say, Peter, tell me about this day. Tell me about exactly what happened. Is this what happened? And then he would go confer with other people who were there to say, is this what happened? And all of that, through the, through the, the guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit, equipped Luke to be able to write the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. Incredible. Luke 5. This specifically, before we get into verse 1, just so you know this, Luke 5 is the third time that Jesus has asked his disciples to follow him. In week 1, we said that, that following Jesus starts with the come and see. And, and with Nathaniel, it was come and see. When he had objections, he had questions, and he, he had some things from John 1, that things just questioning God and saying, is that the way it is? Is that the way it is? And Jesus accepted him right where he was, but he didn't want him to stay there. And he doesn't want you to stay where you are either. He wants you to bring into, you into the fullness that he has for you. So that was the first time. But then there was also another time. Um, we haven't covered this, but we will later in this series. In Mark 1, in verse 16 through 20. Which was the second time that Jesus asked disciples to follow him. This is the third time. You see, even the disciples needed to know that it was more than an interruption into their life. It was Jesus becoming their life. It was more than just putting their plans aside. It was destroying their plans and allowing Jesus to rewrite plans. They too, the disciples, they had an ability to choose to follow or not. They had a family to consider in making their choice to follow Jesus. And they all had a life to leave in order to follow Jesus. 
no different than all of us. No different than all of us. We'll read through our text. Matthew 5, 1 through 11. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, so he's teaching, he sat on the water's edge, uh, he sat at the water's edge, two boats uh, left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. They'd been done fishing for the night. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little bit from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Not that big a deal. Something that Jesus would do. Verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, which is also Peter, he put out into deep water and he let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, uh, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Peter is reluctant He's reluctant. We'll get to this in a moment. He's reluctant to allow Jesus to tell him how to fish. Verse 6. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners from the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up from shore, left everything, and followed him. Some amazing things happen in the Word of God right here in Luke chapter 5. It seems so casual that Jesus would just be teaching along the shore because there was always people following Jesus and there was a lot of teachings along the shore, specifically in this area. This area is about 100 miles away from Jerusalem. This is A lot of Jesus' ministry was right around this place. That's not what's surprising. But what is surprising is Peter's response. As Jesus is teaching, he, he, he teaches, and then he thinks, okay, there's a crowd gathering, so now, Peter, can I get in your boat so he could get a little bit offshore so he could speak to the crowd? Peter was absolutely cool with that. But what Peter was challenged with is Peter knew, he's like, well, for me, I, I'm not going to tell Jesus how to preach because he's got that dialed in. But what does Jesus know about fishing that I don't? And it's amazing that Jesus meets Peter right where he is. And the third time that he's asked to follow, and Peter finds out that following Jesus is more than an interruption in your life, it is a, it is a complete change in your life. That your life is rewritten. That your plans are nullified. And that he gives you plans and you submit to his plan for your life. So Simon, he says, well, Master, we've worked worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, we will let down the nets. See, a lot of people teach through this text and they, they go back to the miracle of Jesus, which is incredible. But I want us specifically to see at the end of this text, Peter's response. And there are going to be four main takeaways with some, some, some points underneath them. But four main takeaways engaging Peter's response to Jesus. First one is this. Look at the way that Peter responds in fear to the holiness of Jesus. You see, the fact that, that Jesus was teaching didn't really change Peter. But, but what changed Peter was Jesus did something in his context. He knew fishing. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes up. Peter had worked hard all night. The fellows had worked hard all night and hadn't had a catch of fish. Jesus says, and it makes no sense to the fishermen in that situation. The fishing time, it was over. But Jesus does something and he speaks to Peter in a personal way. Because Peter understood fishing. And Peter is shown by Jesus that he is God. We know that by the way that Peter responds. He falls to his knees. 
But Peter responds in fear to the holiness of God. Now this is not a fear that he's, he's absolutely afraid and I'm going to run away scared. This is the, the fear, the awe of God. Two different types of fear that are really used in the Bible. One of which is fear, like I'm afraid of God, like I'm running away from God. But in this sense, and what I would like for us to kind of see is, it's the awe of God. They're like, when he falls at Jesus' feet, he says, I'm in awe of you. Because he realizes that Jesus is God and Jesus Christ is, is holy. And he is set apart. That He is the God-man. That he, he did not have to come to earth, but He chose to come to earth. Not to just be the salvation for our sins, but to be the Lord of our lives. Not to just interrupt your plans, but that His plans would become your plans. That your, the futility of your life and your pursuits in life would be made with vitality. That you would come to life in Jesus. But for you to have what Jesus promises, you have to understand that receiving Jesus and following Jesus is more than an in, just an interruption into your life. He becomes your life. A text also in the Old Testament, Hosea 11.9. Somebody else found out about the holiness of God. And this is what it says in that text. It says, for I am God. For I am God. Jesus Christ is God. He is the only person who has, and I've, I've said this in the last two weeks, he's the only person whose death, burial, and resurrection has all been prophesied and it's come to fulfillment. Jesus Christ predicted his own resurrection and when somebody predicts their own resurrection and then it happens, we should probably listen to him. And that lets us know the basis of our faith is because the tomb is empty and Jesus did what he said he would do. And that we hope that Jesus would bring us into the place that He promises that He will bring followers of His. Understand this as Hosea 11.9 speaks over us. God is holy and He is not a mere mortal. We were made in God's image, but if we put God into our image, we make Him powerless over our lives. When we make Him into our image, we have no hope. When we bring God and we view God as being human, He not only is powerless, we have no hope. There's no peace for our soul. And it's supposed to be that way because God is holy. He is set apart. He's asked that we would be holy. But He is holy. He is set apart. And understand, church, God is holy. Jesus Christ is holy. He is not a mere mortal. If we live our lives with just the vacuum of, of, of Jesus, it, what I'm saying, right, what I'm getting ready to say is just a vacuum of Jesus, and we live out a cultural Christianity, we make Jesus a mere mortal. We bring Jesus on our level all the while He's crying out to us for us to grow and be sanctified to be more like Him. And He loves us. He invites us into relationship with us. But we don't come into a relationship with Jesus on our terms. We are met with His on His terms. When you follow Jesus, it's more, more, more than just a bump in the road. It's a whole new road. It's a new path. It's a new way of living. Jesus says in 14.6, He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. That's a very clear path. It's more than an interruption. It's a whole way of thinking. It's a new way of living. It's a new way of trusting. It's a revamping of every relationship that you have. Peter responds in fear to the holiness of Jesus. Psalm 33.8 says this, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the Lord stand in awe of Him. Stand in awe of Him. That's where we're supposed to be every single day. In awe of God. 
that we would wake up, that we would take breath because we know that every breath is given to us from Him. So there should be praise that follows. God is holy. He's referred to in the Old Testament as a consuming fire, the Lord of hosts, the judge of all the earth. It is so easy in our culture to receive Jesus as Savior and yet push Him away and not allow Him to be the Lord of our lives. But you will never have the fullness of the Christian life. You will never be a true follower if you do that. If you just accept Jesus and say, thank you for forgiving me, and then you live whatever way you want to live. Because if you truly are a follower of Jesus Christ, He not only is your Savior, He offers the sacrifice for your sins, but He also becomes the very substance for your life. He gives direction to your life. That He's not only the Savior for your soul, but He's also the guide for your life. He was not just a good guy. He is God. He is holy. He is the righteous one. He is the Lord of hosts. People in the Bible, they were shaken up with the holiness of God. Maybe you know the story of Moses when he had this... It wasn't just an interruption in his life. But his life was radically changed when he saw the holiness of God. The whole course of his life was changed. Ezekiel had an experience with God and he was shaken up for seven days because of it. Daniel, we know the story of Daniel. If you were in church or de-churched, maybe even if you're not even a church person, you've heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den. He, he, he didn't fear the lion in the lion's den, but yet when he had an experience with the holiness of God, he cowered. Isaiah, he tells us, he tells us in Isaiah 6.3 that he had an experience, that God gave him a vision to where he realized the power of God's holiness. And this is what it was. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. It's not the verse that's on the screen. Holy, listen to this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And in response to this vision from God, now you see the verse that's on the screen in Isaiah 6, 5. Look at the way that Isaiah... He reflects upon God's holiness that God revealed to him, that God is holy. And he says, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. He says, I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. His life was wrecked because he saw this image of the holiness of God. Your life will be wrecked when you realize that God is holy, and he's asked you to be holy. That He's left you here on earth, not so you can just live happy, healthy, you know, wealthy lives, but that you would follow Him earnestly. Because following Jesus is not just an interruption in your life, and not just a decision that you made at camp. It's just not a card that you filled out so many years ago. It's not just a bump in the road. It's a radical change to everything about you. Every desire that you have has been tainted by sin. Every desire, every thought that you have has been tainted by sin. Every one. Peter is responding in this way because he realizes that he's a sinful man. Isaiah realizes in this text, in Isaiah 6-5, he realizes that, that I'm a sinful man. And he says, not only that, I'm selling out everybody else that's around me. He's like, they're sinful too. I'm a man of unclean lips, and everybody else is too that's around me. He's realizing. And the same thing that we just realized a moment ago, that God is holy and He's not a mere mortal. See, Peter, second takeaway this morning is, Peter sees a reflection of his sin nature against the holiness of God. He sees a reflection of his sin nature against the holiness of God. And it's because he brings in this catch of fish, and Peter's realizing, he's like, wow, I have lived my whole life, and that has never happened. 
I have never been able to draw on fish like that. We fished all night and there was nothing here. And all of a sudden, this must be God because even the fish obey. And it's amazing to me the complexity in the Word of God. Some things are so simple, but then some things seem to be so complex. Such profound meanings. But Peter sees a reflection of his sin nature against the holiness of God. It says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and they've fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. Get this, church. I'll be explaining this more in the weeks to come. You're a sinner and that makes you sin. It's not your individual sinners that make you a sinner. You're a sinner and that makes you sin. That changes everything. That means everything about us is potentially corrupted. That for all have sinned and they've fallen short of the glory of God. And another translation is they've fallen short of God's glorious standard. I think that's the New Living Translation, if that's the translation of the Bible that you have. That every part of us has fallen. Our desires cannot be trusted apart from Jesus. Our minds cannot be trusted apart from Jesus. The basis of our marriage cannot be trusted apart from Jesus. The nature of every relationship cannot be trusted apart from the holiness of Jesus. Which for us, that means when you follow Jesus, it's more than an interruption to your plan. It is Jesus rewriting your plan. Peter is... Take him a little while. Third invitation to follow. He's going to get it right after this one. But he sees a reflection of his sin nature against the holiness of God. And look what he does. When Peter, Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. And then what does he say after that? He says... In verse 8, he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He sees the holiness of God, and in response to the holiness of God, he realizes that every part of, him, of himself has fallen. That his sin nature has made it like a cancer in his body. And the only way that it can be removed is by the blood of Jesus. Some things about this. Isaiah 53, 6, this will be on the screen. It says, All we, like sheep, have strayed. We have left God's paths to follow our own way. Yet the Lord laid on Him the sins of us all. Written approximately 700 years before the birth of Jesus, this is prophetic of Jesus. That the sins of the world would be laid upon Jesus. That He would be whipped, mocked, and beaten, and scorned on our behalf. So that we can have satisfaction for our sins. That our sin nature could be nullified, and that we could live a different way. Isaiah tells us something that's very profound, but then there's also something very hopeful in Romans 3.24. This also will be on the screen. It says, Yet God... If you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you used to call yourself a Christian and you're being challenged by that word because culturally it doesn't mean as much. But if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, this is you. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, He declares that we are righteous. We are righteous. That means we are right with God. He did this through Jesus Christ when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. Such hope. If you're a follower of Jesus, this should be something, just a rewashing of His grace over you. We can claim this because God is holy. If you pervert holiness, it leads you into four different areas. Listen up, please. If you pervert holiness and you have, you have a wrong view of God's holiness, it will lead you to lifeless legalism. 
If you don't understand that God is holy and that we are made in His image, but if yet, if we view God as, as being human and out of that, and we remove the power, the supernatural power from Him, it leads us to trying earning our salvation ourselves. And we cannot do it. We can have no satisfaction for our sins outside of the blood of Jesus. Jesus came to reconcile men and God. He is our mediator. If you pervert holiness, it leads us to lifeless legalism where we try and earn salvation over and over and over and it's exhausting and it doesn't work and we know that it doesn't work. It leads us to try and work for our salvation. Second thing it does, perverting holiness, it prevents faithful following. If we don't see God as holy, if we see God as somebody who's just, who's just there along for the ride and we've just compartmentalized Him in such a way and say, God, thank you very much for this verse today. Uh, you know, this is wonderful and you, thank you for saving me. And yet we've not allowed Him to be the Lord of our life. Then we cannot faithfully follow. And we can deceive ourselves to thinking that we are. It's twisted when we pervert holiness when we pervert holiness, it leads us to worthless worship. Matt Redman, the worship leader, said it like this. It was an amazing, amazing truth that's really been just kind of washed over me this week. Worship thrives on wonder. For worship to be worship, it must contain something of the otherness of God. For worship to really be worship... It must contain something of the otherness of God. And the otherness of God is the divinity of God. That God is holy. That He is not a mere mortal. That He is worthy of our praise and our adoration and our worship. And if we pervert His holiness, it leads us to a worthless worship. Meaningless in every way. And if you pervert holiness, it leads in the most damning and dramatic thing that it does is this church if you pervert holiness it leads to cheap grace it leads to cheap grace it leads to something that's been coined for decades easy believism that we understand thank you jesus for the cross thank you for everything yeah i'm, I'm saved i'm good to go now now i get to go live the rest of my life the way that i want to live it. And that, in that very moment, is we become somebody who mocks the cross. Understand that Jesus is God, and when He came to earth, He died. He came in the form of a man. He was the God-man. And He died on a wretched cross to be the satisfaction for our sins, that He would extend His perfect and His, his righteousness to us and impart it to us so that we too would be righteous and that we could be holy. But if we get it wrong, we don't, if, we under, if we falsely think that we can have Jesus as our Savior, but not as our Lord, we have accepted a cheap grace. And a cheap grace does not offer salvation. Cultural Christianity offers cheap grace. That I can be spiritual on Sunday morning and I can do whatever I want on Monday morning. That's cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is dead. It is lifeless. Good old-fashioned southern religion also is dead. It is lifeless. Because it has fallen to this idea of cheap grace and easy believism. I accept Jesus on this one day at this camp. I signed, I raised my hand, I prayed a prayer, I did whatever the preacher wanted me to do. It was a very compelling message. All my friends went up, so I felt like I needed to come up. And they tell me that I'm saved. So now I have an excuse to live the life that I want to live in the way that I want to live it. That is a cheap grace and one that does not, listen to me clearly, that is one that does not offer a path to salvation. Receive that. Because you, in that situation, have gladly tried to receive the forgiveness of your sins, but you have not submitted your life to Christ. And you cannot have one without the other. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said this of cheap grace. It's a lengthy quote, but it's meaty. He said this. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace, as he coins it, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without a cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Granted, that is not Scripture. That is his observation in his day and time. But I have to tell you, church, I completely agree. We have lost our identity as as people who are supposed to be following Jesus in our day. And we have gladly received this idea of cheap grace at no cost to us. And at the same time, we have received what Jesus did for us and and, and, and just knowingly or unknowingly have received this cheap grace, but we do not stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. We stand on slippery, slippery soil. And the very hope that we have has no foundation. No foundation. So the thing that we should do, and the same thing that I think we see in Peter's actions, Peter, reading from verse 8 to 11 again, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' needs. So that's his response to the fear and the holiness of Jesus. He says, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. That's the reflection of his sin nature against the holiness of God. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their nets up on shore. Look what happens in verse 3. Excuse me. The third point from verse 11. He left everything and he followed Jesus. This signifies him repenting of his former way of life. He is repenting of his former way of life. And for, for him is the same for us. The very thing that that we should do is we should repent. That's the only proper resource to the holiness of God. When it's reflected upon that we have a sin nature that's fallen. Is that we would repent. Some things about repentance. Repentance is vital for the Christian walk. It's vital in two different ways. But the second way has many, many implications. The first way is this. Because the truth that I spoke over you from Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have to repent of the way that we used to live. We have to repent of, of our sin nature. When we reflect upon God's holiness, we have to repent. And by repentance, it means turning around. Meaning we were doing what we were doing before, but the only way that we can be made right with God is if we turn away from our former life and we chase after God. So that's at the moment of salvation. Understanding you have a sin nature that's fallen and that Jesus and you receive satisfaction for your sins by the the sacrifice that happened on the cross. And Jesus proved proved it when he resurrected. So there's that response. But the life of a Christian, get this, if you've been a Christian a long time, you have maybe done this wrong, so please listen clearly and listen closely. Repentance is not just a one time thing. Repentance is a lifelong process. So you repent of of who you were, knowing that you're an enemy of God. But now your life has changed. So now as you're following Jesus, as He reveals to you things that you need to change, you repent of those things that He tells you to repent of. And He does this by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's well documented in John 14 through John 16. And you turn and you repent of those things individually. So repentance is not just a one-time event. It's a one-time event, but then also throughout the life of a Christian, as you're being sanctified and set apart, for you are supposed to be holy just as the Lord Jesus is holy. The way that He makes you holy is by revealing to you the areas of your life where you have fallen short. So you turn away from those things. You repent of those things. 
That is the proper response to the holiness of God. A cheap grace that's offered to the cultural Christianity receives this cheap grace without repentance. So their lives, get this, so their lives don't look any different than the heathens they live next to. Their lives, their marriages, their divorce rates, the amount of time they spend with their kids is no different than the very people who are outside of God's grace. And how can that be? It's because they're not living a life of repentance. And they've offered their lives to something much less. R.C. Sproul said it this way, Men are never duly touched and impressed with the convicting of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. It's, it's, it's the reflection of our sin nature against God, and it, it, it demands a response. Not the response of cheap grace or easy believism, but the response of faithful following. But to do so, it takes more than an interruption to your life. It is allowing Jesus to rewrite your life. And ultimately, it said in Matthew 3.8, that if we are living a life of repentance, that it will produce fruit. As a matter of fact, it says this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, your life should show, it should show a change. And that change in your life is the very fruit of your repentance. Of not just a one-time decision to follow Jesus and then you decided to go do whatever it is that you wanted to do originally. But your life should show a wonderful, a wonderful truth and you should just have fruit of your repentance all through your life in areas that God has convicted you, that you've turned away from that sin, and now that bears fruit. Now you are doing what it says that we should do also in 1 Peter 1.15, and we're, we're told this as, as followers of Jesus, just as he who called us is holy, so be holy in all you do. That's for us, being followers of Jesus. But then also... The fourth fourth thing we'll see at the end of that text in verse 11 is that Peter lends his life to rightful action. This is the last time that he has to be uh, before he really starts ramping it up. He's told told one other time later in his ministry to follow Jesus. But he starts following at this point. He lends his life to rightful action. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you will too. Here's what you're supposed to do. It's not complicated. We just have to do it. Matthew 28, probably a text you've heard before. Christian, you wonder what it is that you're supposed to do at work? I'm going to tell you. You wonder what you're supposed to do at your family reunion? It's not avoiding your family, by the way. He tells us. Peter lends his life to rightful action, and we have to do the same. In the Great Commission, in Matthew 28... This is not just the commission for the 11 disciples at the time. This is also the commissioning ceremony, if you will, the the course of action that we're supposed to have. And this is what it says through Jesus. Verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me because he's holy, because he's God. He says in verse 19, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus says, you want purpose for your life? I'm giving it to you very clearly. If you want to follow me, this is how you follow me. You follow me to your work with the Great Commission as your, as your mission statement for your life. You follow me to your family reunion, same thing. Great commission drives your life. You want to you follow me? Why don't you follow me at home, and why don't you love on your husband and your wife and your kids, and why don't you do what it is that the Word of God says for you to do? And Jesus says, all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth, that Jesus Christ is holy, he is God. 
And He doesn't just give us advice. He gives us a commission to do His work. So you don't have to have it all together, Christian. Follower of Jesus, you don't have to have followed for very long. You just had to have started following. And you can follow, but you have to do what the Word of God says. As Jesus says right here, He says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them. Making disciples. A disciple of Jesus, the high calling for a disciple of Jesus, is to make disciples themselves. Did you realize that? If you're a lawyer, the high calling of your life is not to be a good lawyer. It's to make disciples. And you get to do it by way of being a lawyer. If you're a school teacher, the purpose for your life is not to be the best school teacher that the county school system has ever seen. No, no, no. The purpose for your life is the same as the purpose for everybody's life. It's to make disciples. But the way that you get to do it is by mentoring and loving on a classroom full of students. If you're in sales, the the goal for your life is not to chase the American capitalist dream. It's to make disciples. And the way that you get to do it is by having interaction and by doing the business the right way with everybody that you meet. That's the high calling of every Christian. Every one of us. We all have a purpose. But understanding, church, the following Jesus is more than an interruption to your life. It has to become your life. Peter extends his life to rightful action for Jesus. See, Peter was all in for the gospel. I'll tell you how his story ends. Tradition holds that Peter... We, we do know some things that he's done for the early church. He was the leader. He was the first among equals in the early church. He kind of shepherded. He pastored the flock. But later on, as he, he had done his preaching ministry and encouraging ministry and doing all the things that Peter did and just really changing all of Christianity, you see, his life ended where he had to bear his own cross. And yet... He did not even choose, as tradition holds, he chose to die in a way that he didn't even view dying in the way that Jesus died to be something that that he could even do. He didn't even feel worthy of dying on the cross the way that Jesus died. So when he went to his cross, he was crucified upside down. What a picture! What a picture. This is, this is one of the heroes of the faith. Was he perfect? Certainly not. Are you perfect? Certainly not. He was given a great commission and he lived it out well. And he changed. Because of his, his message and what the Holy Spirit did at the day of Pentecost and he worked through him throughout the book of Acts, he has been able to change billions of people through his message. But I have to tell you, it started when he took the Great Commission and he took it personally. I want you to take the Great Commission personally as well. And to receive Jesus and to follow Jesus and understanding that that when we follow Jesus, it's not just a mere interruption into your plan for your life. It's allowing Jesus to be your life. It's rewriting your plan. Let me ask you some questions in closing. If we were to sit down, away from everybody else, and just have a conversation, just you and I, would you even consider yourself a follower of Jesus? Uh, By what we've even learned over the last three weeks, would you consider yourself a follower of Jesus? I mean, that's a, I I realize that's a big question. That's a really, really big question. But yet, cultural Christianity has has so become just embedded in all of us in one way or another that I think that we have, we have set our lives apart on the slippery slope of cheap grace instead of the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Would you consider yourself a follower? 
If you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and maybe you had an experience several years ago, but you realized that your, that your one-time experience could not be validated by the way that you've lived the rest of your life, so now you're questioning the experience itself. Here's what I want you to do. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing one song and one song only. But what I would offer up to you is I just want to give you an opportunity. I, I want you to, whether it's, it's while the band comes up or while, while the band plays or afterward, but I myself, I'm going to be at, at the back door. I'm going to be back there. And I would like to just share with you with the scriptures on how you too can be a true follower of Jesus. Maybe that's brand new to you. Maybe it's something you've heard so many times, but now you're convicted that you have to do something with the things that you've heard. So I'm going to give you an opportunity. I'll be back there as the service ends. But then also, maybe for some of you, you, you you're saved, you know you're saved, but maybe you've, you've had aspects of, of your life where you've been challenged by the Word today. And you're like, you know what, I've got, I've got hidden sins in my life that I've not repented of. Maybe for you, even while the band sings, you just need to fall on your face and just confess that to God and then commit to repenting of it. As we all stand. There was a a, a tenseness and a seriousness in this message today. But I think we have to be bold in our presentation of the gospel for us to understand what it really means. And just as the disciples were challenged, and we know that they were challenged at least three times to follow Jesus. But you know what? They followed, and they followed well after that. If you're a follower, if you're not a follower, I just want to challenge you, even through not just this message or hearing the other messages or even in the weeks to come, But pray and seek God and ask Him to say, reveal to me the areas, the dark areas of my life that I have not allowed your light to penetrate so that He can heal it.